You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Sarah. And hey, it's Chelsea. Today, we are going to talk about two cases. One is unsolved, and then we're going to do a solved one as a special for Christmas. So I'm going to start with the unsolved one, and it is about Robert Edwards. So it was early morning on Christmas 16 years ago on the block of North 5th Street in Allentown, where the streets were still alive with zero signs of people wanting to settle in for the night. Everyone was celebrating the holiday and spending time with family, friends, and neighbors. Roughly at 2 a.m., Edward Roberts did his rounds of saying goodbye to friends and family at an aunt's party. His fiance and himself got into his car to drive home to wrap gifts, which was only about three blocks away. And his children, specifically his one son, had only left 15 minutes prior. While he was sitting in his car at a stop sign at the intersection of North 5th Street and Washington Street, shots rang out. He was shot multiple times through the car door. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I know. Crazy. Jeez. Now, luckily, his fiance wasn't harmed during the reign of fire. His son, Robert Edwards Jr., claims that his father would have shielded his fiance because that was just the type of man that he was. And there were so many people in the vicinity of the area, yet no one saw anything. And the fiance apparently didn't have any information either. I wonder if, I mean, we're, I'm assuming a lot of people were potentially like drinking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If it's, you know, Christmas morning, so you're out Christmas Eve. So I wonder if, people either just didn't see it because they were distracted or if people did see things but their stories couldn't really be trusted because everybody saw something but they all described it differently because they were drinking no one probably was like on watch out for a murder to happen so right and like sometimes people are i've heard people be confused on like what an actual gun sound is like some people who might not have heard one before might think it sounds one way, but when you actually hear one, it's like a pop. It's not yeah. like something crazy. Um, so maybe even that. Yeah. I don't know. Real life guns don't sound like movie guns. No, not at all. And who yeah, knows, maybe, maybe some kids or some people had like some like kind of like small fireworks that are making similar sounds. It was a holiday. That's true. Yeah. So nothing was mentioned of that, but I mean, the pops, they're just like, I, they're loud. I'm not going to not say that, but they're just right louder sounding pops that are like done and over with yeah. um but the police haven't released much information at all since it happened they didn't let anyone know how many shots were fired or the caliber of the weapon which makes it really difficult the only thing that they have like come out and stated is that they don't believe it to be a robbery or that it was drug related there was a quote robert was truly an innocent victim in this said allentown assistant police chief david howells jr who was a family friend and even served as a pallbearer at the funeral robert edwards was pronounced dead at the scene at 2.42 a.m. by Lehigh Coroner Scott M. Grimm. It's kind of the perfect last name for a coroner. Oh, yeah. I thought like your last thing. name is Grimm and you're a coroner. Yeah. That is awesome. It's pretty cool. That is awesome. But I wonder, going back to like not saying how many shots there were, not giving the caliber of the weapon, I wonder why. And I know we ask these questions a lot. And one thing that we know is that a lot of times they'll withhold information so that if somebody does know the information, it means that, you know, they know something that didn't come through media. But I feel like, is there any 
this would be a better question to ask my husband, but I don't know if there's a caliber of gun that would be so rare that if they said it was that certain caliber, like, oh, it must be this particular person then, like that they wouldn't want that detail to get out. It just seems like it was probably a handgun. Mm -hmm. I have no idea why they won't release anything at all. Now, Robert Edwards was a 47-year-old who was teacher's aide at Kids Peace. He coached basketball and was a community activist. He also volunteered at the Allentown Boys and Girls Club and offered basketball lessons to neighborhood kids. He had three children of his own named Robert, LaToya, and Brent. And really, from everything that I read, he just sounded like a great guy that was like willing to give 100% all the time. That's definitely the picture that's being painted. Oh, yeah. Like, oh. And I'm not saying it's being painted incorrectly. I'm just like, I'm definitely getting that vibe from what you're telling me. Yeah. There was a service held on Saturday, December 30th, 2006 at Bachman, Kolick and Rainsmith funeral home. The family asked all contributions to go to the Deer Ruff High School basketball program. In Robert's memory, I believe from what I could just gather that I think he played on that team. He went to that. I know he went to that high school. I think he also played for that team. And I do. he would come and give talks and speeches to the high school kids before he passed away. That's awesome. Now, on the obituary page, there was and still is an option to leave messages. And out of all the cases that I have personally looked into for this podcast, I've never seen so many entries. Like, I'll see like a couple here and there, like at the time of. But from what I saw, people are still leaving messages as recent as like last year. Wow. Yeah. They're talking about him. They're talking to him. They're just letting him know that they're not going to forget. They leave like the memories that they had with him. And literally it just seems like he was the life of the party everyone seemed to love him and he everyone was just like you're probably up there making so-and-so laugh or you know cracking jokes and all this other stuff and it just sounds yeah he just sounds like it's heartbreaking but i love it oh yeah and people were recounting memories and they were way too personal so i wasn't going to list them but it was just like he went out of his way to make sure people felt safe He went out of his way to make sure if someone needed something, he was there regardless. So it's like really sad. Yeah. Robert Edwards Jr. says Christmas isn't a holiday for me anymore. He doesn't put up any decorations inside or outside of his house. The only decoration, quote unquote, that hangs in his house is part of the Christmas tree from his house of 2006. He had one of his friends cut the tree and turn it into a plaque that says, if you don't stand for something, you will fall for anything, which is a saying that his father would tell his basketball players before games. Robert Jr. is now following in his father's footsteps at as a counselor at Allen High School. Now, that was in an article that I read like a couple years ago, so I don't know if he still is a counselor, but it's clear that he was following his father's footsteps. At the party the family attended that fateful night, Robert Jr. says there were roughly about 30 people there, and he doesn't believe any of them were behind the shooting at all. In attendance were family and good friends. There were no issues during the party that would indicate to him that there was a problem with anyone there. The lead detective has since retired, and the family rarely hears from the new detective on the case. The family is desperate for answers and willing to offer a reward. They feel they can't put all their hope in the police, and they feel they need to try to take on work to work on the case as well. Allentown Police launched the Cold Case Homicide Team in 2015, which was an initiative to look at cases dating as far back as the 1960s. It was created by Joel Fitzgerald, and it will be run by a surgeon and two detectives. They started with four cases, and Roberts was one of the ones that was picked in the area. And I will say there was, like, hardly 
any documents or like articles about this guy at all. It was so sad. Most of it was run by a local newspaper, like in the local community. I couldn't yeah. even find his story on newspapers.com wow. <laughs> at all, which is really sad. Yeah. But if you do have any information, contact the Allentown police cold case unit at 610-437-7721. You can also call the anonymous tip line at 610-439-5911. <laughs> A man in Brazil dies from severe burns, maybe from a UFO. In Washington, D.C., Jack the Slasher breaks into a house and barely steals anything, but dumps molasses all over a piano and cuts up curtains and sofas. I'm Andrew Gable, and on Forgotten Darkness, I'll look through old newspapers and other sources to find those lesser-known stories of yesteryear. I look mostly at true crime and unexplained phenomena. So if either of those topics sounds like your sort of thing, check us out. You can find the podcast at ForgottenDarkness.Podbean.com or on most podcast apps. We are then just going to jump right into the solved case that happened. It technically happened... Christmas Eve, but the bodies were found on Christmas. So we're just going to count it as a Christmas special. Yeah, today's Christmas Eve anyway. It's fine. Yeah, true. It counts. It works. Yeah. And I want to say, I never heard of the story. It's a crazy story. I've never heard of it. It's um about the, ugh, I'm probably going to pronounce their name wrong. Whoever family? I think it's wrong. I went to college with someone that had this last name and he pronounced it Walliver. That's it. Walliver. Walliver. I- it is well. Yeah. Thank you. I'll probably mm-hmm. I'll probably say it wrong, so please correct me. I, I watched a documentary, so most of like the information I got is from a documentary. And I was like, how can I write it so I say it correctly? But I watched it two nights ago, so it's completely gone at this point. So if I say it wrong, yell at me, please. <laughs> okay. So as I said, this so the research was based on an oxygen episode called Silent Night, Lethal Night, which was aired on 12-16-2018. It was season two, episode seven. I had never seen it before. We um my gripe, we got a Comcast bundle and it was part of it. And like two months later, they rebundled things and oxygen was out of it, which kills me. So I don't get to watch oxygen. But anyway. Boo. Yeah, I know. And I don't get... I don't have it either. I don't get... There's another crime TV program that I don't get that I was really pissed about. It just shows crime shows all the time. Do you know what it's called? Oxygen is the only one I know of. Really? Oh, God. I'm not sure. I can't think of it. I will remember and tell you. But I'm really irritated. I had... Those were the only two um, like channels I wanted. And for the bundle, I had to spend an extra $50 and then they took them off. It killed me. And I signed a two-year contract. Anyway. So... Yeah. For the holidays, every family has a tradition or two. For the Walliver family, they would venture to the in-laws on Christmas Eve for a wonderful dinner of lasagna, shells, ham, etc. Then on Christmas, they would wake up and open gifts in pajamas as one big family. On Christmas Eve 2002, things were going to be different. Jean and Ernest Walliver had separated earlier that year. The silver lining, though, was that they were bringing Jean's granddaughter, Cassie, and it was her first Christmas, which was which is super exciting. And I will say while researching, because I did look at some articles as well, other than the oxygen episode, every other article said this granddaughter's name was Melanie. And I'm definitely going to go with Cassie because in the oxygen special, the aunt was saying Cassie. So I'm pretty sure she's correct. Okay. 
Yeah. But I kept going back and I was like, cause at first I researched the cases like on a couple websites and then I watched it and I was like, I could have swear they said Melanie and I double checked. So I'm just going to go with Cassie it's, because it's possible that they changed the name somewhere along the line because she was so young maybe that they didn't want her name out in the media or whatever. So it may be kind of a fake name. Um, I think. I feel like I've always heard this case with the baby as Cassie. Melanie's not familiar to me, but Cassie is. Yeah. So so we'll stick with that. One then. way or the other, we'll refer to her as Cassie. Yeah. Jean and her daughters, Vicky and Izzy, lived in Middletown, PA, which is a fairly small community of roughly 10,000 citizens. They were supposed to be making the trek to Johnstown, PA, which was about two and a half hours from their home. Dinner time was approaching, and Mary Bittman, Jean's mother, was starting to get nervous that they were not there yet. She started checking the weather and traffic reports, and then got even more anxious when no one was answering Jean's home phone. Though, if they were coming to her, I don't know why anyone would be answering the home phone, really. Anyway, she eventually reached out to the police and they basically told her, you know, it's a holiday. There could be traffic. Right. The weather, there was icy roads. They're like, give her time. Um, they told her there were... And the roads between Middletown and Johnstown during this time were all under construction through like State College. Oh, really? Like it was horrible to drive up through there. Yeah. So they definitely were saying, hey, just give it time. They yeah. also eased her mind by saying there were no reports of an accident or abandoned car that fitted Jean's uh, car description. So she kind of settled down. But on Christmas, there was still no Jean or her daughters or granddaughter. Mary called the police again and requested a welfare check. Officer Givler got the call and was actually on a second shift of a double. He showed up to the house and knocked on the door with no response. He tried peering into the windows and did not see anything suspicious or out of the ordinary. He saw the typical holiday setup of tree and gifts, and he decided that he'd just walk around the side of the house, see what he could see. But he did notice that the garage windows were broken, but he really didn't think anything of that at that time. He said that he's been on the force for so long, you know, you see a couple things, but looking at the pictures of the house, they were living in a really nice neighborhood. This house was gorgeous. It's like my dream house. Why wouldn't broken windows be replaced, honestly? Like, especially, it's not like they couldn't afford it. I just don't know why he wouldn't think that that was kind of like a red flag. But anyway. I mean, it happens. Um, the When you look at the house, this is very close to where I live. Um, so when you look at the house in pictures, I agree. It is an absolutely gorgeous house. I drive by it. I drove by it 20 minutes ago when I was coming home. Oh, really? Um, I didn't realize yeah. it was so close. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it is a absolutely beautiful house. It's not in, I mean, not like Middletown is a, a horrible town to live in, but it's not in like a, a ritzy community um so i agree it would be weird if the windows were broken for a long time but it could have just been you know it broke the day before and they just hadn't fixed it true um i mean it's definitely not a like slummy area but i wouldn't it wouldn't be something to me that i would be like oh they would fix that you know immediately yeah um so well i have to share with you so you can laugh at me a lot um as i was doing this i was like garage windows i've never seen a garage with i even googled it to look at garage with windows like around here i really i mean looking at them i was like "Ah, i've probably seen them but like honestly around here our garages usually do not have windows and i was like 
I was literally so confused for the longest time. It held me up and I was like, garage windows, but they're higher up. Yeah, we have, we have one, but it's like a normal window. Is it? Our neighbors have the higher windows on their Mm. garage. A lot of the ones have like a little small, almost like a people. It's not like a full window. So I don't know. I was just confused. And that's my stupid person moment. Had to, had to share with everyone just to make fun of me. But (laughs) when Gibbler notices, he decided to try to like pull on the garage door. The front door was locked and he couldn't get in, but the garage door did open. So he opened it and he immediately was alarmed because he saw Jean's car in there and she was supposed to be leaving. And so he decided to go in because he thought something was wrong. He didn't like see anything out of the ordinary. It was just her car and she was supposed to be there. The parents hadn't seen her. No one could get a hold of her. Right. And like, it's Christmas day. You can see the tree. You can see the gifts. The car is there, but you're not seeing anybody moving in the house. Like that's suspicious for sure. Totally. So officer Gibbler went in the house and it didn't really take long for him to discover a body in the kitchen. He found Jean's body with a bullet hole in the head He felt her. He was hoping that she was alive, but unfortunately she was cold to the touch and he immediately called for backup. Another officer came within minutes to assist. And while they were securing the house, they heard noises from upstairs and they immediately thought that the perpetrator was still in the house. So they went upstairs with gun draw with their guns drawn. But once they hit the top of the steps, they saw a body at the end of the hallway with an infant fussing, holding onto her mom's shirt. Like how awful, how awful is that? The worst. Yeah. And you have to, like, really think, like, how long was that child there yes. with no help from anybody? So it's it's horrible. It is. Um, so this victim was Vicky. She also had a gunshot wound to the head. The one officer took the baby and called for an ambulance for the child. While Officer Gibbler finished securing the house in the last room, he found Izzy on the bed, and she also had a gunshot wound to the head. After the house was secured, both officers waited for the homicide detectives to arrive. Detective David Schweitzer showed up and started to collect evidence. While looking at the garage, he had noticed that there was an automatic garage door release mechanism that was disengaged. That led him to believe that whoever committed the crime had an intimate knowledge of the layout of the house. Detectives then moved into the house and took notes about each body and their surroundings. Jean was shot in the kitchen, and near her were coffee grounds and a piece of the coffee machine, so I am not a coffee drinker. The coffee filter, the thing that goes in the thing? Yeah. Is that a filter? And then the little handle thing that holds the filter in the coffee, that thing? Okay. That that was on the floor. Okay. Um, And it wasn't like it was fresh ground, so they believe that she had her body turned to whoever had come in, and she was trying to make coffee when she was shot, so she was unaware that she was in trouble. Jeez. That's what they surmise. Someone you trust. Or it could be someone you trust. That too. Or at least someone you recognize, right? Like, yeah. I mean, if someone walked into my house while I was making coffee, especially while I was making coffee, because I would very much not be awake and they were like approaching me, if I knew them, it wouldn't strike me as odd. But if it was some random person, I would be taken aback more, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Victoria, who was found in the hallway, had the bullet wound higher on her head. Investigators believe that she was bent down trying to protect Cassie, and that's why it was so high up compared to the other two. I guess the other two were kind of like, quote-unquote, eye level to the perpetrator, but hers was like higher up on the head as if she was bent down. If if I remember correctly, hers was more scalp and theirs was, the other two were yeah, more yeah. forehead. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Izzy was shot at point blank because she had burn marks around where her bullet hole entered. Oh, wow. It was around her eye socket. It was, I believe it was her left eye. And she also had burns on her hands. They surmise that she tried to grab the gun and move it. And as it went off, it burned her, her hands. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. They uh, believe that the weapon was a small caliber pistol, but it was not recovered at the house on Christmas. One of the detectives picked up the phone and noticed that there was no dial tone. They walked the perimeter of the house and found that all the wires were cut that led to the house. So they knew that the killer knew when entering the house, they were rendering them helpless as this plan unfolded. Wow. Yeah. And they really wanted to have that because I guess premeditation, correct? Right. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. That's that's definite proof in court between first and second degree. Yeah. Exactly. Of cutting all of that. And we've talked about it before, but murders that happen with people who are married, they always go after the husband. Well, slash spouse. Yeah. But in this case, it's she was married to a man, so it's a husband. Yeah. Yeah. And then obviously they moved a close circle, then fan out. As the detectives <laughs> were talking to the family, Jean's sister Michelle tells Schweitzer that Vicky had called her a couple months before the murder. Vicky kept saying it's happening to Izzy and he promised it wouldn't. Now I'm going to give a trigger warning. When Michelle was able to calm Vicky down, the truth came out. She said that Ernest had been molesting her. Ernest told her if she told anyone, he would start doing it to Izzy, which Unfortunately, you hear that a lot in abuse cases, like within family that I've heard, like the older kids want to protect the younger kids. So they'll do anything and keep their mouth shut, which is sad and scary. Very sick. Very scary. And most of the time it doesn't end up protecting anyone. But as a kid, you you don't know that. Nope. Not at all. And it's it's horrible. It's awful. And Ernest is the father, correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And now, from what I read, he basically was a stay-at-home dad. Like, Jean was a workaholic. She, I want to say, was an x-ray tech at a local hospital. She had, like, a lot of aspirations. And I don't think that Ernest went past high school. He would take the kids fishing, hunting, would basically spend most his time with them. So, I mean, there was a lot of opportunity for these yeah. things to happen, which is awful but once vicky did find out that it was happening to izzy she immediately went to the police um accusing Ernest of sexual assault and when she you know was brave enough to do that her sister also went to the police as well so they both did Ernest was ordered to have no contact with the family or go near the house and he honestly denied the sexual charges at all at all times this case was supposed to go to trial in january 2003 only two weeks after the murders occurred and since he was not allowed at the house, he moved back home with his parents and brother because obviously he's really not working. Right. So Christmas Day, after they found the bodies, they immediately, the detectives immediately took that three-hour drive to Cambria County where Ernest's parents' house was. Ernest voluntarily talked to the police along with his brother, Scott. Schweitzer said that he did show some emotions, but he gave an alibi of spotting deer and coyotes with his brother, Scott, in the morning of Christmas Eve. When Scott was questioned, he corroborated Ernest's story. They even said they stopped at a convenience store for snacks and such. So with that, the police took the info to look into and moved to the next suspect on their list. So the alibi is that these two brothers were in the woods. Yep. And then they said, oh, well, we stopped at a convenience store. But before they confirmed anything from the convenience store, the police just said, "Okay, we'll look at that more later and just kind of moved on. I think what they wanted to do was try to get surveillance footage from this convenience store. 
because obviously it was a hike from Cambria County to where the Wallovers lived. Right. And just trying to find out the timeline, you know, and they both corroborated each other's story. Nothing seemed like out of the ordinary. So they were looking into things, but they couldn't hold him. So then they just moved on because they had a list of suspects because it was like three women. They all had some type of relationships and they were looking into all of them. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So it wasn't like, oh, you're cleared. We're moving on. It was just like, okay, we're waiting Mm -hmm. for more information. So while we wait, we're going to keep. Okay. Exactly. And then their next move was on to Frankie, who was a father of Cassie. Victoria only dated him shortly, but during that time, it was volatile. There were multiple police calls between the two. And in the beginning, there was questions of paternity for Cassie, but a test proved that he was the father. Oh, which I love saying. It reminds me of Mari. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I had the same thought. Okay. So Frankie at the time was living in Reading and detectives drove there to question him. He gave an alibi of being with his girlfriend, attending church, and dropping his mother off at her job, which was all corroborated, and I think they had some surveillance uh, video of him dropping the mother off. Okay. The interview wasn't a total loss, though, because Frankie told them that Vicky started seeing another person named Turner Higgins, so then that's who they turned to. They went and interviewed him, and they also asked the Waller family about him, and they said that it he was very friendly to them. He seemed very nice, but it was kind of that type of relationship that was on again, off again, on again, off again. Right. And Michelle, the aunt believes that he definitely loved Victoria, even though it was like a hot and cold situation to note, there was a recent fallout where Victoria moved home and which is so sad. And I hate saying it. And I know she passed away, but for the longest time, she had Turner convinced that he was the father of Cassie, which she had known he wasn't, Ugh, which like, ah, uh, so rough. Don't like that. Yeah. Don't like that at all. That's, that's not good looks. No, not no, to no. speak poorly of a victim, but yeah, that's. That's, That's shady. Just, if you're if you're taking notes, don't do that. Yeah, don't don't. So the police were like, "Hey, did he find out? Was he angry? I mean, I'm angry for him. So I mean, I'm sure." Right. That's awful. But then I mean, back to Maury, like you see how many fathers when they are told the DNA test doesn't match, you see how heartbroken oh, yeah. they are. Mm-hmm. I mean, as much of a joke as it was to say, "Oh, it reminds me of Maury." Like, no, really, you can see the pain Oh, yeah. in those men's eyes mm-hmm. and i'm i'm sure that's how turner was feeling as well i have well i had a friend um and for five years he thought that this girl that he thought was his daughter and it turned out she wasn't and it killed him inside gosh and once he found out he wasn't the father he had no rights it doesn't matter that he was involved right? in her life for five years and she was gone and it didn't matter. And it, it was rough to watch. But anyway, it was also suspicious to the police because Turner was also a local locksmith. And when Jean separated from Ernest, she had asked him to change her locks. So the police are thinking, did Turner make it seem like the house was broken into to take the heat off himself? Because he could have potentially had a copy of the key. Right. Now, Turner's alibi was that he was with family members at a Christmas party function. Um, and then he went home with some of these family members and his alibi was corroborated by family members and he was ruled out. So when things weren't looking good for Ernest and Scott and their stuff was not checking out, detectives issued search warrants for the Walliver family home in Cambria County in hopes of finding the weapon. They also got a search warrant for Scott's car 
because Ernest didn't have a car. So if they did make the trek, it most likely was going to be in Scott's. Now in the car, there was a notebook found with a line saying, we were out spotting deer and coyote, which was their alibi. Yeah. Your face says it all. <laughs> That's, it, I don't, sorry. I, this, these are not sentences. I, my husband goes spotting. His father goes spotting. Um, one of my best friends, her fiance goes spotting all the time. And like, I might get a text that just says like, Hey, I'll be home late. I'm out spotting. Or, you know, like my friend might just text me and say like, Oh my gosh, we were spotting tonight and saw, you know, XYZ number of deer or bear or whatever. But I don't know that anyone's ever just like written it down in a notebook that they keep in their car. Yeah. Oh yeah. Granted, that's not to say it never happens. I mean, I'm, I have a very small circle of people that I'm friends with that hunt, but, um, I, that's weird to me. Oh yeah. And the detectives found that weird too. So they had made the decision to hold a second round of interviews for the pair of brothers. While Ernest was trying to be talked to, his attorney for the sexual assault charges had reached out to the police station and he basically told Ernest to, like, stop talking until they met, which that is his right. Right. So, obviously, he then refused to talk, but Scott was being interviewed in the other room. I, f I have to, like, get into the mind of his lawyer at this point because he's about to go to trial or he's about to go to court in two weeks and now he gets word that the client that he's representing in court on sexual assault charges against these girls is now being questioned in their murder like what would go through your mind obviously the first thing is don't talk like just yeah. d telling him you know do not talk until we can talk but i'm i'm just curious about like, where does that put your mind as an attorney? Like, I don't, and, and not, not saying guilty or innocent one way or the other, but just kind of thinking about if I was in his shoes and I got that call, like, good grief. Like, yeah. that, my, my reaction would be a deep sigh and the phrase good grief. Like, I would pull a Charlie Brown. Yeah. It was, I was kind of amazed just, that he reached out and, Ernest wasn't the one to reach out. Like, really? I don't know. It's true. But Scott was about to crack the case, like, open. At first, he was holding up the story of the spotting deer and coyotes until the detectives showed photos of the crime scene, which were super graphic. And in the oxygen special, I mean, they show you everything. They just blur out the face. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's intense. And um, obviously, it wasn't blurred out for him. And he immediately started crying. Like, he knew these people. They were part of his yeah. family. I think they were married it for was 22 his, years. His sister-in-law and nieces. Like, exactly. Thanks. Yeah. So, Scott really just wanted to do the right thing, and he basically told Schweitzer that the alibi was made up and created by Ernest. The story goes, what he gave next was that Ernest originally told him that he wanted to go and fetch the family dog that was, quote-unquote, rightfully his. Scott knew that Ernest was not allowed near the house and should have said no. He claims that Ernest was pushing him and due to the pressure, he took his brother. He didn't think anything else of it. Yeah. So when they got there, Scott said Ernest was ecstatic when they saw Jean's car at the home. That's weird. Yeah. Like, I would think if you want to go and get the dog, because, you know, that's his excuse. 
I mean, I have a feeling we know why he was really excited, but like if you're trying to play it off as I want to get the dog, wouldn't you be more excited if she was gone? Mm -hmm. Oh, I think he noticed that things were kind of wrong. Yeah. Um, He said that Ernest um, had told him to park the car a short distance away and that he'd be right back. Scott said at that time, like he had checked, he had like, I guess, looked at like his dash thing and it said it was like roughly around 4 a.m. He said after a while, Ernest came back in a rush, no dog, and was completely frantic. Scott told police where they could find the weapon, which they were able to recover. It was a 22 caliber revolver. They used the serial number to trace it back to the brother of Ernest's mother. Ernest ended up stealing it. And ballistics proved that it was a gun that fatally killed Jean, Vicky, and Izzy. So Scott went into a plea deal with the police since he helped find the weapon and gave the confession of what really happened on Christmas Eve. But I mean, it wasn't really what happened. It was just like, you know what I mean. His version of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he was charged with third degree homicide and sentenced to the max of 25 years, which sounds like so terrible because he didn't go in the house at all. Right. So this is where like people will ask me a lot just because of obsession with true crime and having studied like forensic linguistics, you know, how does the language come in with these different things? And that's the third degree part is Mm -hmm. because he was so far removed from the situation. But if he had gone to cops that day when they got home Christmas Day or like day after Christmas, it would not it likely would not have been a third degree homicide charge. But because he didn't say anything and then went along with the alibi. Yeah, it makes it more than just a clueless getaway driver because there was some sort of agreement with what he went through. Yeah. And that's kind of what gets you in these sort of situations like he didn't pull a trigger. He didn't, he didn't do anything, but he still has that guilt because of not telling anyone and going yeah. along with it. Well, Scott's father said at his trial that Scott was someone who always tried to help others. And that was what landed him in trouble. Someone else in court, I couldn't find out who said it. I found it in an article that uh, I list as a source that this is Scott's biggest regret in his entire life that he wasn't able to have the courage to stand up over his demanding brother. I believe that. And that would be hard. I mean, yeah, he didn't say anything and, you know, the whole spiel I just gave, but man, you would live with that forever of, you know, if I hadn't driven, would this have happened? And, but ultimately like, it's not his fault. Yeah. You know, like he, he didn't do it. Like he didn't force his brother to, to take the gun, you know? Well, that's, that's hard. From reading one of the articles, like specifically about Scott, the Wayliver family, they are sad about Scott, but it doesn't seem like, I mean, I'm sure a piece of them are sad that they won't like be with Ernest, but the one brother, they have another brother named Ray. He's like, we miss Gene, Izzy, and Vicky. Yeah. Like, they were part of their family, too. And what he did was kind of unforgivable. But they're just like, Scott fell into his trap. And yeah. so they, they are really sad about that. But it doesn't seem like, like some, fa- like some, I sometimes I watch some of these cases and these families that stick by 
some of these people, I'm just like, how does it yeah. seem like they're one of them? Yeah. So as for Ernest, he was charged with three charges of first degree murder and the sexual assault charges um, that he quote unquote attempted to get out of. But since both the girls were killed and couldn't defend themselves, Ernest was not found guilty on the sexual assault charges. Um, but he was obviously found guilty on the murder charges and they thought that that's sufficient. He'll right. be spending his life in prison. Um, he has been fighting to have the sexual assault charges expunged from his record. Um, Dauphin County first assistant district attorney, Fran Chardo asked the court to keep the charges on his record as to his, to show his motive in the crime. Right. Though I was unaware that it would stay on your record if you weren't convicted of it. So the, the fact that the charge was filed remains on your record okay um it's kind of like if you think about like the impeachment process which we saw play out twice in the last presidency um like trump will always have been impeached he'll always have had those charges brought against him for impeachment even though he was acquitted okay he'll still always have those charges it's similar like, if there's enough there to charge you, that charge will always remain, but it will always show it as non-substantiated or acquitted or whatever specific terminology a judge rules on. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Another thing that is interesting with Ernest is that while he was waiting for his trial, he tried to hire Hitman from jail. Um, Yeah. He tried convincing a fellow inmate who was actually a jailhouse snitch that he needed Frankie, the father of Cassie, to be killed. His ultimate plan was to make it look like a suicide and have a note confessing to the murder. So obviously he'd fall on Frankie and he'd be released. I love how these guys always end up finding the jailhouse snitches. Oh, yeah. Like, it was like destined. <laughs> it, like it, it just it always happens. Yeah. Like heads up, if you're in jail and someone's willing to uh be a hitman for you, A, don't hire hitmen because mm. just don't. But B, they are probably undercover. Yeah. So don't. Okay. You're gonna make your own life worse. Well, detectives were able to set up a recorded phone call with Ernest and him talking to an undercover DEA agent. He used words to form a verbal contract for the murder of Frank, and this was able to be used in the trial. Uh, the audio of this conversation is on the Oxygen's episode, um, and it is chilling. Like, you can see how happy he was when they when undercover agent told him that he would, you know, do this for him. And it's just scary. Um, he does still claim that he is innocent as... Still been trying to fight the courts since his conviction, which blows my mind. It is. It's crazy to me the way that people who are convicted with this much evidence continue to claim their innocence. Yeah. And like, you know, I look at, oh, what is his name from the staircase? Oh, um, I know who you're talking. Joe. It's I can something. picture his face, but anyway, it, it, it makes me think of, you know, when you look at that case, at least there's a little bit of reasonable doubt. There's a little bit of, could it have been something else? It doesn't look good for him, No, but is there that piece of reasonable doubt? 
And to me, this case that we're looking at doesn't have that element of it. Like the motive is there. The proof is there for the SA allegations. And then it just happens to fall before the courts. And then his brother admits it. Like there's too many things that line up perfectly yeah, for it to not be him. Mm-hmm. But he still, you know, is claiming that innocence. And that always just the the psychology of that fascinates me. Yeah. And they told and I mean, it like, I guess it'd be different if they didn't find the murder weapon. But I mean, it wholeheartedly pulls Ernest in. Like, Oh, yeah. Like it was his uncle's gun. Yeah. dude. It, mm-hmm. I mean, everything is pointing to him. Oh, yeah. Exactly. So I have no doubt that it was him. I just think he is scumbag. Yeah. I think every time that I drive by this house, um, I always think, and I had this thought today when I was, I only pass it if I'm coming from a certain shopping complex back into where I live. Um, And I was thinking today after I left Target and was coming home, like, I wonder what it's like to live in that house now around Christmas. Oh, I wonder if the family even knows. Do they have to disclose that? I'm not sure, but like it's it's known in this area that. Okay. I mean, I've only lived in Dauphin County for three years and I know about it. Now, granted, I also, you know, clearly really like true crime stuff, but <laughs> yeah, um, it's, you know, like. I was told about it very quickly, actually by Amanda at a firehouse, something or other. Oh, um, so that's also probably why. But I feel like the people living there know about it, but it would be weird. Yeah. So that's the end. That's that's what you get for Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Hopefully you guys <laughs> hope you guys have an awesome and safe holiday and um Stay tuned for some special New Year's Eve and New Year's related cases next week. That's all we have for this episode of Keystone Cold Cases Podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victim, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by Chelsea Brown. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kcccod.com. The music and production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.